Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brian. And this episode, get out your slabs and pantars because it's SST 208, the Elliot Sharp Carbon Monster Curve CD. We've had Elliot on a ton of times before, and it's always a interesting and mind-opening listen, maybe a mind-blowing listen, perhaps. Um, and I really do enjoy that, even though I don't get to rock that much with an Elliot Sharp release, I still really enjoy it. And Brant, we've got a special guest. You bet. We've got Bobby Previtt on the show. Yeah, it's a real interesting listen and some great stories. And man, um, spoiler alert, I've been listening to Rain Dogs all week after listening to that <laughs> interview. And I can't wait for people to check that out. So hang in there for the interview. It's awesome. Yeah. Before we do that, Brent, can I hit you with a couple of spiels? Oh, please. Okay. Well, thanks for asking so politely. Um, the first one I got to get you with, Brant, is a Supreme Echo update. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yep. Now, everyone knows that I like to bring the Canadian punk to the show, and we've got a Canadian Prairies punk rock update this week. Really? Yeah. So, Supreme Echo, of course, it's that archival label that always does an amazing job at unearthing amazing and hard to find Canadian punk rock. Not just Canadian, but that is a big focus, obviously. And most recently, this is the label that did those insane Neos reissues. Remember the Neos brand? Remember? Yep. Josh Hayden loves yeah. the Neos. Yeah. So, I mean, Supreme Echo has brought the Neos recently. And don't forget, the Neos were produced by Rob Wright from No Means No. Do not go. forget. Okay. Um, but I got to hip you to four releases, Brant, on Supreme Echo. Okay. Okay. The first archival release that you can pre order right now that I have to mention is a band from Winnipeg, 1981, called The Nostrils, mm, Brant. Yep, yep. Seven inch coming out called Undaunted. Eight tracks from 1981 remastered from Cassette and uh, making its first appearance in this amazing comp of nostrils tracks. This is very snotty and melodic punk. Kind of sounds like early Clash or Buzzcocks. Definitely got to check that one out. Most deaf. Most deaf. Now, also from the Canadian Prairies brand, I got to talk about Riot 303. Oh. Remember, th remember them? Yeah, that's uh, uh, Alan Von Zipper. Yeah, so this is this is skate punk from Calgary, Alberta, early 80s. Members who went on to uh, play in bands like The Sturgeons, Beyond Possession, The Primrods, Forbidden Dimension, Color Me Psycho, Curse of Horseflesh, Von Zippers, The Chodes, The English Teeth. Yeah. These are all folks who started out in Riot 303, a very influential Canadian skate punk band from the early 80s uh, skated the manor where the another state of mind documentary was filmed during its stop in Calgary don't forget um, they have got basically their collected works coming out on an LP on Supreme Echo can't wait to get that um, and don't forget of course Brent that uh, Riot 303 appeared on volume one of Witch Comp uh, blazing trucks and oh, what's it called? Skate rock. 
Yeah, the Thrasher Skate Rock yep. Comp, Riot 303, don't forget. Blazing so, Wheels and Barking Trucks, I think it's called. Yeah, can't wait to get that LP. Their stuff is impossible to find, super expensive. I have their Real, tapes. Riot 303? Yeah, I have the Chodes tape too. Have you ever heard the Chodes tape? Oh yeah, That's wicked, man. Yeah, that yeah. needs a reissue, right? Yeah. Okay, I also got to mention... Uh, the Nostrils and Riot 303 are kind of the highlights, but I also got to mention, I didn't know that this was happening, but Supreme Echo is also putting out a Stick Farm LP. This is the crossover prog thrash band from Victoria, BC from the 90s. Can't wait to get that Stick Farm LP. Got to check that out. And Brant, another LP I didn't realize that Supreme Echo had put out that is kind of a recommend for you, Pandora. Hmm. They put out the Pandora record, which is kind of a missing link from early New York punk. I want you to check that out. Let me know what you think of Pandora on Supreme Echo. Okay. Yeah, missing link. I don't know what that is. You must know what it is. Okay. Please do. The second thing I have to mention in my spiels, Brant, I got to talk about Scat Records. Hmm. Yeah, why do I know that name? This is an indie label from Cleveland, Ohio, started in the late 80s, 89, by Robert Griffin from the mighty Prison Shake. Hmm. Ringing a bell yet? Maybe. Does Prison Shake have records on that label? Oh, yeah, of course. That's and, probably how I know him then. Yeah, and Robert was also in the band Spike in Vain with Scott oh, Pickering. yeah, that's how I know. Yeah. Yeah, you'll know Spike in Vain, of course, yeah. um, with Scott Pickering, who was also in the band scarcity of tanks brand spike and vein rules man oh yeah just wait just wait so scat records started in cleveland ohio they eventually relocated to st louis missouri in the mid 90s and this is the label that of course has uh, releases by prison shake and spike and vein archival spark spike and vein but also guided by voices the mice Nothing Painted Blue, Speaking Canaries, Cobra Verde, those amazing Hotel Cleveland comps. And I didn't really think that Scat Records was a going concern anymore, but it is. Um, so I knew that they had issued the Spike and Vane LP, Death Drives a Cadillac, in 2021. And I picked that up, but it never really occurred to me to investigate what was going on with Scat Records until now because... I saw that they were also reissuing the Spike and Vane cassette, Jesus Was Born in a Mobile Home. There, it's coming out on cassette to begin with now because, of course, there's the LP backlog. Because of who, Brant? Uh, Adele? Adele. Because of Adele's vinyl needs? Adele's vinyl needs are delaying all of our vinyl needs. And uh, so they've re-released the Jesus Was Born in a Mobile Home cassette on cassette to begin with will ultimately come out on an LP. So I caught wind of this and I was like, wait a second, what is going on here? Is scat actually going on? And it definitely is. Um, you can go and check out scat records, not only on their band camp, but also their actual scat records website, which has more really, it has less, like it doesn't have any of the digital on the website and it has more of the physical stuff that's not on the band camp. So you got to check out both sites. It turns out, but here's, the main thing that blew my mind when I went to the Scat Records website that I was not aware of, and man, I need to be aware of this. The My Dad is Dead LP 
and he's not going to take it anymore. Originally released in 1986, they re-released it as a double LP with the the second LP kind of having their original cassette, it looks like, on it. And it was remastered by none other than... I don't know. Who? Who's the master of remastering? Uh, uh, Steve Wilson? <laughs> Oh man, I really got you. John Golden. I can't believe that the Goldenator remastered this uh, original. Is that what we call him now? That's what I call him. <laughs> the original, and you know I love My Dad is Dead. Uh, I, that's Mark Edwards' band. Um, and, and again, I've mentioned this before. Their double LP, The Taller You Are, The Shorter You Get, 1989 Homestead, is an absolute perfect classic record. Um, and then Mark, of course, went on later to do the Secular Joy Proj. But I can't believe that this record was re-released as a double LP. It's been out for a while. Um, but I ordered that so fast, there were flames on my keyboard. Um, now, you should also check out other releases that I didn't know were available. Like, I, I mentioned, you know, Nothing Painted Blue, Speaking Canaries, The Mice, Guided by Voices. You can go and order stuff, but also... Yellow number five, Brant, featuring Brant Bjork. Oh. Go check, go check that out on Scat Records. Um, the Styrenes, um, just a ton of great indie rock uh, from the '90s. There, punk from before, featuring, of course, you know, Spike and Vane and some of the Spike and Vane offshoots. And then they're re-releasing some stuff. There's some great comps that are available digital only on the Scat Records Bandcamp. You got to check that out. Hmm. Uh, yeah, just uh, two quick things on that. That Death Drives a Cadillac album is wicked. Mm-hmm. I do not know the other one that you mentioned that's coming out on cassette, so I'll be checking that out for sure. It's out now, baby. Yeah, Spike and Vane rules. Uh, and if you're going to reference Brant Bjork, just make sure you say friend of the pod, Brant Bjork. Okay. Yeah. Done. It's official. Okay. Yeah, he's a friend of the pod. <laughs> right on right on all right brent that's what i got what about you okay ryan i haven't been listening to anything other than uh what i'm gonna spiel to you about here this week i I was actually gonna try and rock another one of those fall recommends but uh instead this week i teed up the mojack previt primer Mm. okay yes do tell. So Bobby Previtt is a crazy prolific drummer, composer, and band leader. He's again one of these super talented musicians associated with the downtown New York music scene. Yeah. We go into some of it, uh, you know, his story in the interview and touch very briefly on his massive discography, including a few of the albums I'll mention here. Now, I have to say, I'm not saying these are his best albums or anything like that. I'm just saying this is stuff that I dig and maybe someone listening to this might dig it too. Uh, some of this is up on his band camp, some of, some of it's streaming, some you'll have to track down on CD or LP. Bobby Previtt and The New Bump is the name of the band. Set the Alarm for Monday is the album. 2008 Palmetto Records. It's streaming and it's also on his band camp. Super bitchin' cinematic film noir. Track titles like She Has Information. And Were You Followed? That's the name of a track. (laughs) Bill Ware on vibraphone really adds to the whole feel of it in a super cool way. 
a project called Omaha Diner has a self-titled record from 2014. Another cool one you can find, it, it has its own band camp, Omaha Diner. It's not up on Bobby's. Seven string guitar whiz Charlie Hunter, who he plays with in a bunch of different projects. Stephen Bernstein on trumpet. Skerrick on sax, who he plays with all the time. All of these people Bobby has collaborated with many times. These are jazzed up covers of top 40 hits from, you know, I don't know, the 60s. All were, all were apparently number one hits. It's pretty cool. Uh, we ran out of time to talk about this in the interview, but check out his record 110 on his Bandcamp page and read about how it was created if you want to hear and read something that'll just, you know, that's just totally outrageous that'll blow your mind. Ponga, self-titled from 1999 on Loose Groove Records, which is Stone Gossard and Regan Hagar's label. Uh... It's funk, electronic, improvised jazz rock, Skerrick again on sax, noisy and doing some like noisy, really blippy electronics, David Palmer on keys, Wayne Horvitz on organ, uh, and Bobby just tearing it up on the drums. Uh, Wayne Horvitz is a New York jazz pianist, organist, composer. Bobby's played with a whole bunch. Uh, they often show up on each other's records. A good one to check out is 1998's uh, avant-garde free jazz supergroup Downtown Lullaby. That's the name of the album. Uh, it's Wayne Horvitz, Bobby, Elliot Sharp, and John Zorn. Uh, Elliot is also all over Wayne's albums. And Elliot, Bobby, and Wayne all to play, play together in a totally wild project called The President. Uh, a great one I mentioned in the interview uh, you're about to hear is the totally excellent Tim Byrne album. That's B-E-R-N-E. Pace Yourself from 1990. Tim is just a wicked and underrated avant-garde sax player. Uh, his frequent collaborator, guitarist Mark Ducre, is just a total shredder who's played with Bobby as a duo also. You'll hear a bit about that. Uh, and also check out Tim's band BB&C and their 2011 Skronkarama album, The Veil. Bobby's not on it. Uh, it's Tim, Jim Black, and Nels Klein, but it just rules super hard. So check that out, BB&C, The Veil. Ryan, you want some metal? You know I sometimes do. <laughs> okay, well, you're going to hear about The Furies Inside Me, original soundtrack in the interview, which features Bobby. John Rosenthal, and Peter Aaron of the Chrome Cranks. Oh. That's really cool. That sounds cool. But also Bobby's excellent project, Mass. So check that out. Uh, I'm not going to get into it. I'll, I'll leave that those two for the interview. Uh, but the Beta Popes is one that doesn't come up in the interview. It's Bobby, Skerrick, again, real name Eric Walton, by the way, and Jamie Saft, both, uh, again, frequent collaborators of Bobby's. Jamie's on guitar for their two releases, both from 2008, a live and a studio album. If you like to mix your jazz and metal, kind of like Naked City, but, hmm. you know, way doomier, less spazzy and less blast beats, uh, you'll be all over this. It's super cool. <laughs> I love the description. <laughs> uh, also check out the Jamie Saft album Black Shabbos on Zadok from 2009 for more avant-garde metal with Trevor Dunn on bass. Bobby plays drums on some of the album, not all of it. 
Uh, it's insane. If you like Phantomas, you'll mm-hmm. like that. Right on. Another cool listen is a soundtrack Bobby did and released under his own name, like as Bobby Previtt, in 1987 uh, for a film called Bought and Sold. The album is just 100% Bobby. He's the only musician on it. The movie sounds like the description of it sounds really dark, and the soundtrack certainly is. Uh, the album's called Doll Bang, Gushing Sound, Human Shriek. Ooh. Yeah. When you dive into Bobby's career, it's just so impressive. He's an amazing drummer, obviously, but also a super talented composer. So just dive in. There really is something for everybody in his catalog, uh, and this primer just barely scratches the surface. Yeah, that's a good one. Have you practiced your Fibonacci, Brent? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, then we better do it. History lesson, part one. All right, like I said, always a mind blower with Elliot. And I mean, some of this, some of the stuff on this record is familiar to us. Some of it's not. So it's it's an interesting listen and great liner notes. And again, just like so cool that SST put this out. Yeah. You know, it's I listened to this over and over this week to get familiar with the tracks and kind of understand again. And I mean, I kind of have to start over every time it's Elliot Sharp because there's so much going on, but it's just amazing that SST put this out. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure it is. Yeah, well we've had him on a number of times, you know, with very various different projects, um, you know, including Mofungo and Semantics, but the closest to what we're about to hear would be the most recent one, episode mm-hmm. 194, uh, the Larynx album. Or Larynx. Or Larynx. <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned, this is a compilation album. It's over an hour long, one hour, 13 minutes actually, so it's only available on CD and cassette. Elliot told me he proposed the comp idea to Greg Ginn, and Greg agreed. Uh, the tracks are taken from three different albums, uh, and we'll get into these albums a little bit more when we go through the tracks, but 1984's mm-hmm. Elliot Sharp Carbon album, 1985's Six Songs slash uh, Marco Polo's Argali record, and 1986's Fractal. Ryan, uh, the liners for this actually have a few nugs in there that I don't think we've talked about before, especially that first part. Yeah, it lays it out really nice. You want to hit me with some? Yeah, so here's what Elliot spiels about in the liners with respect to Carbon. Ready? Yeah, man. Here we go. Carbon debuted at the Speed Trials, NYC, May 1983, as a trio with Jonathan Kane, Swans, and Rick Brown, V Effect, Fish and Roses, on steel drum and mallet bass. YTYKD from that gig appeared on Homestead's Speed Trials. Remember that awesome comp? Yeah, well, that's what we didn't know. So, like, I know we've talked about that comp before and obviously knew that that this was on there, but I I guess I never looked maybe, or maybe when I spiel, I know I spieled about that comp one time in an episode of The Comp Zone. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, um, I don't know if, you know, we've ever talked about it when we're talking about the, you know, the history of carbon kind of thing that that was kind of the first lineup of the band. Yeah. Yeah. With those dudes. Yeah. So that's, that's Elliot, Jonathan and Rick. Okay. But then Elliot goes on to explain next version, 
David Linton, drums and metal, Marie Pilar, voice and slab, Charles Noyes, drums. This band played clubs as well as New Music America in D.C. 1983 and went to Europe, minus Noyes, in fall of 83. And here he explains, you know, the guiding factors for this combo, which is, it's actually helpful when you're listening to this uh, to this combo and these tracks. Improvised song forms the skeletal structures, speed, density, loudness, a variety of internal details embedded in the sonic flux. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whoa. So cerebral, this Elliot Sharp stuff, man. Oh, like, dude. you gotta... It's it's way way up there. Yeah. Oh man, when you read his book, it's just like it, it's so over my head. It's not even funny. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh this was also released overseas this compilation Ryan on German label Irrational Records. And a few years after this came out, Irrational also released a second comp, Silly Contemptation, uh with slashes in between Silly Contemptation. Uh, which has all of the tracks from these three parent albums that are not on Monster Curve, and ah. and two unreleased live songs on that comp. Uh, you can also hear all of these tracks and a bunch of other crucial recordings like the Virtual Stance record, uh, Dataside, another Carbon album, uh, on the awesome three-disc Age of Carbon set released in 2011 on Swiss label Intact. Mm-hmm. And I think that's up on... Elliot's Zor Bandcamp page, but I'm not 100% certain on that. I, I should have checked before we recorded this. Hopefully there's a way people can listen to this online, though, who don't own it. Uh, here's what Elliot told me about the title. The term monster curve comes from space-filling curves as defined by the mathematicians Cantor, Piano, and Hilbert, whose work was all incorporated in Benoit Mandelbrot's Fractal Geometry of Nature. A major revelation for me. Yeah, he speaks about that in the liners here. He says that he felt the the resonance of that. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, just another example of how deep Elliot thought about his music and these compositions. Yeah, man. Let's throw it over to Bobby. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Bobby Previtt. Bobby, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Okay, so I want to go back to uh, when you first started playing drums. Actually, before that your first stage performance <laughs> oh man really yeah <laughs> well i don't even think it was a stage but you know that's 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 a detail this was in niagara falls new york yeah i grew up in niagara falls and you know uh my father was a, a factory worker and uh you know it's a long story but um, I made I, I, my parents wouldn't really buy me a drum set uh, for various reasons, um, and so I decided to make my own drum set out of garbage cans and linoleum and uh, aluminum pie plates on plungers for cymbals and things of this nature. Uh, so you know, it's a long story, but yeah, I had quite a fraught beginning to my drumming career. Let's just say that. Well, I, I, I thought that was funny to read because I was actually just interviewed a, a different drummer a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about uh, making drum kits out of 
you know, cardboard boxes and throw pillows for your first drum kit. You're, <laughs> so yours was actually a lot more elaborate than, than that. Oh, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I made a pedal and everything, you know, out of a wound-up coat hanger for a spring and a rubber ball. and You know, I made a bass drum pedal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had a whole thing. I played those drums for a year. I was even in a band, and then, of course, the band got a gig, and I was fired. <laughs> <laughs> Now, your first performance was on guitar performing the song Hound Dog, so I'm assuming your entry into music was getting bit by the the Elvis bug. Well, you know, I I came from a very unmusical family, so I wasn't really exposed to music, you know, like a lot of people were. Um, You know, I didn't have a dad that was into jazz or anything, you know, like we were. We knew nothing about We didn't even have a record player. So we never listened to music. The only music I heard was from two sources, the television and Sunday uh, liturgical music from the Catholic Church. Right. That was it. So uh, I'm wondering if my musical, uh, you know, if what happened to me was a, a, a crashing together of those two things sometimes. <laughs> But, you know, the medieval and the TV, American television. But uh, that, that was it. We, we never listened to music, no record player. Music wasn't going to be... We never went to a concert, like, ever. Right. I, I never remember going to a concert. So it was very, you know, kind of different. Um, I think, you know, I sort of had to discover music on my own. Hmm. I bet that kind of influenced your playing in a way, though, in a different way than it would if you were just steeped in it from a young age, maybe. I guess, sure. Um, you know, I, of course, having done, having come from that, always wished, oh, gee, I wish I would have had more of a steeping, you know. Yeah. Uh, but maybe, well, it just is it is i mean who knows it 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 shaped me maybe it made me the you know it obviously made me who who i am today for better or worse you know um so uh i guess you know what i like to say is you know i guess there's no obviously there's no right way there's no uh you know you you can come to it all different ways and uh, it just depends. It always comes down to the individual person, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I have it that you moved to Buffalo after high school, I'm assuming, around 1973. Now, was this specifically to pursue, pursue a BA in music? No, I was going to be a dentist. Oh. <laughs> Again, my father, there was, I couldn't, there was no going to music school. <laughs> right. Forget that. I mean, that was, forget it. Yeah. Uh, so, but the thing is, my father had died right before college. And, um, but his voice was so strong in me that, you know, I just, well, I can't be a musician. I, I have to be in dental because, you know, he wanted me to go to dental school. For him, it was like, well, you know, it's not as difficult as being a doctor, but, you know, you, you, you make a good living. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I think I would have been pretty miserable as a dentist and probably a pretty miserable dentist, but um, both. But um, so, you know, I was hanging around Buffalo at the time and I was in pre 
pre-done, you know, a lot of math, a lot of science, which I, lo- I liked math and science, but, you know, I didn't really, I, well, then, then I, you know, kind of gravitated over the music department. And at that time, the music department, through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation, was like there was, an, there was a, a, a subset of the music department called the Creative Associates, started by Lucas Foss. And in there was John Cage and uh, Morton Feldman and Jaron Hiller. He was, he's the kind of the father of computer music. Um, one of the first people to do computer music based tunes mm-hmm. and all these super heavies of the, you know, avant Western tradition music. Um, Zanakis came through a lot, you know, this kind of thing. And my teacher, Jan Williams, who is a legendary, he was on the, you know, he's a legendary percussionist of that era. He was on the original NC from Terry Riley. He was on that record. I remember when he came back from the recording session in New York and told us all about it. Yeah. It was wild. Um, you know, I didn't understand. I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know who John Cage was. I would see him in the hall, and I would just think he was that weird guy. You know, I kept thinking. But then suddenly it dawned, you know, I found out who these people were and I started listening to music. And, and at the same exact moment, I was um, exposed to jazz. So, you know, I had grown up playing rock and R&B on the streets uh, and in, the, you know, clubs uh, uh, and, and one actual bordello in Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I was, you know, my mind was, my little, you know, Niagara Falls mind was completely blown when I started to, when I started to be exposed to this. Um, it was quite a, quite a, a an amazing uh, education. So all these things crashed together. Monk, Mingus, Miles, Zanakis, Varez, all these things kind of, and, and even some musics like, you know, Mozart, which I, you know, didn't know anything about until I went to college. So uh, they all crashed together. And, um, you know, in my my little little drummer brain there, and, uh, you know, it, it, I guess it came out oh, on the other side mm-hmm. as me. Obviously, you know, in Buffalo, you're starting to play out too, or at least play with, with people. I believe the Pull to Open album was recorded while you were still in Buffalo. Oh my God! You know the pull to open album. <laughs> okay, all right. I see who I'm who I'm dealing with now. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, I've been playing right along. Yeah, I went to. I, I was a quote professional musician, whatever that means. It just means you know I was making money playing music. Right. Not a hell of a lot, but I was making money. And when I went to Buffalo to study music, and I was still playing, uh, and I just started playing more in Buffalo. And that's actually, you know, where I met Elliot Sharp. I knew him in Buffalo. We went to the University of Buffalo together, and I, uh, I, I think he got, he got, did he get kicked out of school for political activity? Something <laughs> like that. I, think, I don't know. But we were in electro, I think we were in electronic music class together, and then he, he got kicked out, or something like that. Uh, we had a band he had a band that, or he had a band i was in called you know ntvc neuron to new neuron to voltage converter something like that you know <laughs> classic um early elliot nascent right. sharp you know right. um and so i you know i met him there i remember actually one particular hilarious 
episode with Morton Feldman, you know, the famous composer who was Elliot's advisor, okay. you know, at the time. And Elliot was doing, I guess this was before he got booted. He was doing a, um, a you know, a uh, concert, his, his, his final, final, um, you know, project for this class was a concert and he had listed me to play and he had this conga player and, and it was, this really was like earlier Elliot shots because it was all about 16th notes. And I don't know if he was into the fractal thing yet, but it was all about, you know, overtone series, 16th notes kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Really classic Elliot. And um, so, and everybody had this music and except the conga player was only playing 16th notes. He was only going, supposed to go the whole tune, right? So he didn't need any music. He didn't read any music anyway. He couldn't read music. So he's there, and we set up, and just before we're about to play, Feldman calls, is sitting in the front row and calls Elliot over, right? You know, like motions him over, and Elliot goes over, and he whispers in his ear. He says, he only says, Put a music stand in front of that guy. <laughs> it was super deep. Like, wow, man. You mean you can't even admit that music could actually be played like unless somebody's reading it. Right. You know, that was really an eye opener. I mean, I had a lot of great respect for Morton Feldman, of course. But wow, that was I, I had to like come check that and go, OK, all right. OK, well, you know, that's that's. I see. I, I'm starting to figure this out. Yeah. So um, hilarious. And he did. He dutifully had to go put an empty music stand in front of the conga player who was going. It was just hilarious. But, um, you know, so we were in a band together. We hung out in Buffalo, you know, and some. And, and you know, I, I, I remember those days. And then, you know, Elliot, I think he moved to Northampton after that as a kind of a way station before he moved to New York. Right. Okay, so by the time, you know, you're moving to New York, I think around 79, 80, that downtown scene is already really starting to cook, it seems like. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the thing, the, I guess the good thing for me, or the, the, the thing, was that I knew Elliot. He was the only person I knew. So after he moved to Northampton, um, he moved to New York. So he, he predated me in New York by a couple of years, and that was enough to kind of get his footing, right? And he became in, you know, in the downtown scene, and he, he knew all these people. So I decided I was going to move to New York, and Elliot, you know, very graciously, well, we were good friends, you know, we were good friends. And so he said, you know, come stay with me. But you have to imagine what it's like for someone in New uh, who's living in Buffalo in a house that caused, like, I had a whole entire house myself with a sun porch and a regular porch and three bedrooms and a gigantic kitchen and a living room and my drum setup. This is all my (laughs) driveway. This is all mine. And then Elliot says, well, come to New York. You can stay with me. Okay. And so I packed my drums into my, um, you know, my Ford Mustang. I drive to New York and, you know, I go through the Holland Tunnel, and it's rush hour, and I'm, my muffler falls off in the middle of the Holland Tunnel, and so my, you know, it's, it's like really loud, and I get out on the other side. Some of these bright sunshine, and there are just people everywhere, right? And I'm like, 
I had been to New York before, but you know, now I was going to move there. So I was like, wow. Okay. So I'm trying to follow Elliot's directions and he lived on seventh street, you know, um, between, I think between A and B, I'm pretty sure B and C. I can't remember exactly now B and C maybe. And in any case, um, in my mind, I like to tell this story. It was hilarious because I was driving through New York, like I was driving through Soho, and I was going. I had no idea what Soho was, and I was going like, "Oh yeah, I guess I could live here. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't like the area so much. You know, I was driving through all these like, West Village. Oh yeah, this is a little better. I don't. I could maybe live here. Okay, I don't know. You know, <laughs> well, there's no possible way that I could have afforded. You know, one tenth of what or hundreds of what that was anyway i kept driving i'm driving east and i'm going you know avenue you know third or lexington or at third avenue second avenue i'm going oh my god this is like first avenue avenue a it was like a you know bomb zone and i was completely freaked out and i remember parking in front of elliot and him coming out very wonderfully with a big smile on his face to greet me you know and to welcome me to new york also on his face that i could see because he didn't have a beard anymore right. like when i knew him in buffalo he had a beard he, he ate natural food he didn't drink when i, when I got to new york he, no beard he really liked like uh, like um uh brandy <laughs> this was like the new elliot show i was like whoa elliot like is that really you you know corrupted uh, by new york <laughs> yeah and um well he returned the favor eventually yeah uh and corrupted new york but uh but uh yeah i lasted like three or four days I ran out of money. I ran out. I was just like, wow, this is way too, I got to go back to Buffalo and make some more money and come back, you know? So then what followed was just a series of back and forth from Buffalo, New York until I could really, you know, establish myself in New York. Okay. Thinking back, what do you think your goal was at the time? I mean, you're a, you're a composer as well. So were you like thinking you wanted to be a band leader? Did you want to join a band? Well, I wanted to join the community of what I consider some of the greatest musicians in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to join that community, and I was also terrified of it, you know. Like, am I going to be good enough? Or am I going to just, you know, get completely singed and burned and have to, you know, have to drag my tail back to Buffalo, you know, yeah. um, I wanted that, and um, you know, also New York was scary because it was way bigger than what I had been used to. Um, so the whole thing was, you know, a bit frightening, but also, of course, exhilarating. And I wanted to join the community of musicians, and I think eventually I wanted to have my own band. But I, I think I actually did one good thing when I moved to New York, which was I decided that I wasn't going to pursue my own music for some years until I met and people and figured out what the lay of the land was. You know, and I think in retrospect, uh, you know, you make so many bad decisions when you're young and old, <laughs> you keep making them. But that was a good one. And because I really, then I, it was clear, I was just the drummer, the new drummer in town, whatever. And I just, you know, met a bunch of people 
and I got to play with them. And I didn't complicate it by trying to have my own music, you know. Right, right. And I also didn't complicate it by people thinking I was a, a composer. And that would have put a crimp, a, sometimes a serious crimp, on your activities as a sideman, you know. Uh, not only do you have less time, but people tend to not hire you because mm -hmm. they think you're a leader. And, uh, you know, yeah. well, <laughs> so, so there's only room for one songwriter in this in this band. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, or they think, yeah, they don't want to be judged or they think, uh, you know, they won't. Oh, he won't be interested in my music, this kind of thing. You right. know, yeah. so it was a good decision on my part because I really got to meet a lot of the people I would play with a lot later and, you know, so on and so forth. OK, well, here's what I did. So your career is just so daunting and vast. I, I thought I'd just throw some names or projects at you. And maybe you could uh -oh, just you uh, could just share uh, some thoughts or recollections with our listeners that might want to check some of this stuff out. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> uh, this could be dangerous. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to start with uh, one of my favorites, and that's the first Tim Byrne Chaos Total record, "Pace Yourself," that you you played uh, on. How did you meet Tim? How did I meet Tim? I don't remember. I'm sure maybe through Marty Ehrlich, yep. you know. Um, I don't remember how I met Tim, honestly. Um, but uh, but that's a that's a great record. Yeah. And um, you know, I called up Tim like, oh, I emailed him like some years ago, just saying, you know, I listened to those records again. Those couple, of, those, are, those are good records. Yeah. So you know, I I toured with Tim with the, for years. And, you know, I learned a lot from Tim. I learned a lot about leading a band. He was a very good band leader. Very good tour. You know, we have to be our own tour managers in this level of the music business, you right. know. Yeah. You, so he was a, a masterful at that, actually. You know, he he would sit at home reading European train schedules he, sometimes. He told me. <laughs> you know, but he was a really good band leader. And I, I actually did learn a lot about leading a band with you know from tim and you later toured i believe as a duo with mark yeah because i met i met to gray um through tim and then we had a really nice duo together for some years you know uh mark is one of the greats and also one of the really most generous and and wonderful human yeah also you know i there I, I toured with him for years and there was never a moment there was just the two of us i don't remember any moment that i was the least bit like you know drugged with him or upset or you know anything he's just so cool right you know? um so yeah I, I i was happy to meet him and to play with mark yeah uh here's an interesting one at least to me i, I found it interesting you played with terry adams of nrbq Oh, yeah. I just talked to Terry like last month. He called me out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him for, I don't know, 15 years since we were in that movie, that Altman movie together, you know, Shortcuts. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, Terry, Terry and I, you know, I, I got him a deal with, uh, what was it at the time? Um, New, New World Records, I think. And um, I played on that, on his, uh, uh, on that record, you know. I talked him up to them. I said, you should do a record with Terry because he's never done a record or at least not many under his own name. It wasn't NRBQ, you know? Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, 
So yeah, so there, yeah, Terry. We had a couple gigs after that movie. Terry's great, you know. Terry's great. He could really, he could really summon Monk, you know. <laughs> uh, kind of amazing. <laughs> okay, speaking of movies, uh, the the Furies Inside Me soundtrack with Peter Aaron and oh, John yeah. Rosenthal. That's oh, super right. interesting. Oh wow! You really have done your uh, wow homework. These are like <laughs> you went from pull to open to the furies inside me. I mean, I I uh, I salute you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, well, that was my good friend Michael DePaolo, who's also from Niagara Falls, who was one actually one of the other only people. That's right, I knew two people, and Michael, Michael and I, because he was in New York, and he, we used to hang around a lot. He was a filmmaker. And, you know, horror films, basically, you know, and um, he was in New York. I knew his brother in Niagara Falls when I was five years old. I knew Michael when I was five years old. And um, he had come to New York, you know, some years before. I didn't know because I'd lost touch with him. And so we got back in touch and um, we used to hang around a lot. He used to have these Nathan's coupons for 25 cents, you know, uh, 25 cents for a, a hot dog. You know, twenty five cents for a. You know, we and we would go and eat at Nathan's like all the time. I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> you know, he would have these. He'd always have these. I don't know where he got them. If he was living at the Y, he lived at the Y for I don't know fifteen years. He had one room at the YMCA in Forty Seventh Street. <laughs> he liked it because you know everything was taken care of. It was like living in a hotel. You know. Right. Um, and he, he liked living in Midtown. He wanted to live in Midtown. So, you know, he did that. You know, now he's 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 all grown up. <laughs> he married and he, he actually still has an apartment in New York. But he, he actually lives up near me now here. He lives uh, 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 in near near uh, near Troy, New York. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so I did. He called me. He said, you know, I need a favor. Can you do this sound drive for me? And I said, sure. So I got Rosenthal and, and Peter Aaron, and I thought, let's just, you know, bang it out. Uh, it's kind of a metal soundtrack. Yeah. You knew those guys, or, or someone else put you together? No, I knew them. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I knew everybody. As soon as I moved here to Hudson, or I got a house here in Hudson, you meet everybody in two two minutes, right. you know. Like, every, you meet everybody you, you, you need to meet in two minutes, pretty much. So um, I knew them, yeah. Okay, the Dead City Radio Project. I'm assuming Hal Wilner, with the, the man with the golden Rolodex, brought you into that project. But did you know Burroughs? No, I didn't know Burroughs. But the funny story about that is that that's how I met Joe Furlough, the, end, the great engineer who ended up engineering all of my records in the Gramavision era. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I remember I went into the studio with Lenny Pickett's piece, and everyone was there. Burroughs was not there, yeah. but Lenny was there. Hell was there, you know, uh, all, you know, all these musicians. So, you know, the producer, the composer, everybody was there. You have to imagine this. So I went out in the studio and I was playing chimes, right? <laughs> not drums. Yeah. I was playing chimes and a couple other small percussion. I don't exactly remember, but, you know, Lenny had written this chime part and he called me to play it. Okay. Cause I went to percussion school. So I, I sort of knew how to sort of play chimes. And, you know, since I went to percussion school, so I was there and I was there playing the chimes and Joe was the engineer and he couldn't, I guess he kept, I kept playing, he kept trying to get a sound and it was a long time and I guess he just couldn't get a good sound that he wanted. And so what does he do? 
you know, instead of like sort of trying to hide the fact that he, now he's Joe Furley, he's a famous engineer, right? But instead of trying to like, so he, you know, he, he just presses the talkback button in the speaker. So it comes over the speaker so everyone can hear. And he just says, hey, Bobby, who, who, who he just met, you know, 10 minutes ago. Yeah. I said, yeah. He said, do you have any idea how to mic those things? And I thought, well, I actually do, but only because I was in the percussion ensemble. Right. So, you know, if, 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 so I said, yeah, I think you, you mic them from the back, actually. He said, oh, okay. So he walks out, he turns the mic to the back, walks back in. I play for another three seconds. He says, that's much better. Thank you. <laughs> and I thought, this this guy is the bad is bad. You know, he's I mean, meaning good. Yeah. This guy is incredible because he's not afraid to, to ask. He's yeah. not afraid yeah. to say, you know what? I don't know something. Yeah. I'm going to ask you because, you know, think about it. When would someone like Joe Furlow, who did records for David Sanborn and Roberta Fleck, when would, when would he close mic a set of chimes, right? <laughs> like, even if you did a symphonic project, you wouldn't close mic a set of chimes. You right. would only percussion ensemble, which is a very rarefied, you know, piece of the music business. So the fact that he asked me that in front of everyone, he didn't come out and whisper or was really, I really respected that greatly, you know, and he turned out to be a really great friend and, um, you know, amazing, legendary engineer. Yeah. And that's why, you S know. Serving the music over ego, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And just like, okay, I, I want to learn something, you know. Yeah. It's, it was so humble and, you know, like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't hope to have one thousandth of the ears that Joe Furla has, you know, <laughs> like his ears are so finely tuned. I did a experiment with him once where um, he was swore that he could hear the difference in speaker wire, <laughs> you know, because he would his own speakers. I said, Real, OK, let's go do the experiment. So I brought in some cheaper wire and because he always brought to the studios this great wire. And I said, let's do it. And so I changed the wires around and he heard it. <laughs> I was just yeah, dude. <laughs> All right. You know, what can I say? Yeah, you, so, you um, win. <laughs> you win. Yeah. You know, he, he was a master. I mean, I had many, many, many Joe Furla stories, including, you know, one of the heaviest things anybody ever said to me about music. Um, I don't know if you want me to tell that yeah, story. Absolutely. Really. Yeah, please do. I mean, I was in the studio, we were recording, I mean, we were mixing empty suits. And at that time, I was, you know, crazy. And like, we, we only had, it was tape, there was only 24 tracks, but I had so many instruments, there, there were multiple instruments on each track. Now, you know what that's like as a mixer without a computer? There's an <laughs> instrument for a while, then there's a completely different instrument on the same track. Right. So what you have to do is, on the fly, while you're mixing, you have to on that track you have to you have to mute it, change the EQ to the new. You know you have to do a new process for the new instrument that's going to come in, right? Right. right. Yeah. As the as the mix while you're mixing everything else with your hands, moving stuff like it was an impossible task, and 
our method was I would stand behind him and I would say, you know, okay, here come the trombone. All right. You know, and I would whisper sort of like, all right, here's, here's the blah. Here comes this, you know, and he would just sit there like a Zen master with his hands over the board. Right. <laughs> so one day, you know, we were doing this one track and he just was very frustrated. I said, what's the matter? He said, you know, I just, I just don't have enough hands. I just can't. Because the guitar, there's a guitar solo, it needs to be ridden. Now, when you ride a solo, it means you have your hand on the fader, and and you turn it up and down, very slightly, very smoothly, because sometimes it's too loud, sometimes it's too soft, right? So you kind of ride it, as they say, right? Yeah. And he couldn't do this because he was doing 50 million other things, right? <laughs> In real time, without a computer, so. Every time there's a you know something wrong with the mix in those days, you can go you know all the way, you know ten minute mix, five minute mix. You can get to the last seconds. If you do something wrong, you have to do the whole thing over again. Right. But all those moves, those hundred moves over again. So, he's, I said, well, Joe, let me ride the the, the guitar. Yeah. He said, really? I said, yeah, I can do it. I can ride. It's one fader. I can just ride the guitar and you know it's my tune i know what the level i want the guitar solo to be and i'll just do it he said man that would be great so we do it we get to the end i you know i'm super concentrated right i mean i don't want to mess up right. this is joe fro we get to the end joe has done everything every move perfectly everything he's done is perfect all these hundred moves fading in and out blah blah perfect guitar solo totally messed up it's obvious and i like i go oh man joe i'm so sorry man so sorry I said no let's just do it again okay so we do it again and now i'm really concentrated on the guitar i am so laser focused on the guitar you know i can't tell you i don't i man i was felt so bad we get to the end joe furla has done everything perfectly once again Bobby Previtt's guitar solo ride, terrible, but worse, <laughs> worse. And then he says it to me. He says the thing that I remembered my whole life. That's one of the greatest lessons of music I have ever learned from anyone. And he said to me, wait a minute, wait a minute, Bobby, wait. When you're riding the guitar solo, you aren't listening to the guitar, are you? Mm. And at that moment, the whole world changed. I said, well, of course I'm listening to the guitar. I mean, I'm riding the guitar solo. I said, oh, my God, no, don't listen to the guitar. Listen to everything else, but don't listen to the guitar. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. You know? And I put my hand on the fader the third time, and, as if like, and I just listened to the gestalt of the music and didn't listen to the guitar. I just just vibed it and it was perfect yeah and even thinking about that now i get goosebumps <laughs> that was an unbelievable lesson for me yeah. that you know i i carry into my you know i teach this improvisation workshop twice a year for it's an intensive four-day workshop and um a free improvisation and you know that's kind of one of the things i teach you now like like you you can't focus too too much on one thing you lose of course the bigger picture you know 
Um, and I, you know, and, and then I also say, you know, stop listening to yourself so much. Yeah. You know, stop listening to yourself. You have to listen to everything around you. And that was kind of what he was saying to me. You know, it was, it was as if I was the guitar player and I was so focused on myself, I forgot about the rest of the music. You yeah. Know? Well, so <laughs> you get, great. you hear about bands breaking up over that kind of stuff, like sneaking back into the studio to push the faders up on, in the mix on, on their instrument or whatever, right? Instead of, right, yeah, you know, looking right. at the Ridic- the music as a whole. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but from that day forward, I, I always had my, from that day forward, whenever mix we did, Joe would give me my own fader that, of course, had my name on it, but wasn't connected to anything. <laughs> <laughs> it just said Bobby. And I could move it up and down whenever I wanted, you know, just for fun. <laughs> all right here's one for our sst listeners ned rothenberg you've played with oh ned sure ned great he was in my i i had ned in my um band um you know because he's a triple threat a bass clarinet flute saxophone i mean a great player very very different player you know Mm -hmm. really really blazed his own path you know uh which I really always respected him for. You were talking earlier about uh, playing percussion instruments. I think you uh, were a percussionist on the Rain Dogs album. How did that happen? Oh, wow. How did it happen? Maybe Hal. Yeah. It probably was Hal. And and I played bass marimba. Mm. And the funny thing was, when I finally got the record, which was many years later, because they, of course, they never sent me a record, but I finally got the record, and I listened to that track. You know, it's weird because uh, they mixed my parts so high, especially on the clap hands, that one tune, clap hands, yeah. and um, you know, I um, years later, I you know, I did this um, series of I worked with the great percussion ensemble, So Percussion. Um, and since you've researched me uh, thoroughly, you probably know this record called Terminals. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's a series of five concertos for percussion ensembles and improvisers like Medeski's and Nels Klein and Jen Shu, uh, Zena Parkins, you know, great improvisers. So, but when I was first re- rehearsing with them, they didn't really know too much who, who I was, only Jason Truding knew who I was because he had been at a master class that I had given um, at Eastman to Michael Kane. And he remembered that master class. So uh, I knew him. So, you know, th- that's kind of how I got in with soul percussion. But they didn't know who I was, right? So one day after rehearsal, um, you know, uh, they didn't know anything. One day after rehearsal, we were all having a beer, and it came out that I played that part and they all were like oh my god that was you he said like because i was always saying i'm a terrible percussionist which is true and especially marimba player which is true i'm you know miserable marimba player you know guys and um they said bobby you're you're so funny you're always telling us how you're the worst marimba player on the planet yet you played the one of the most iconic marimba parts <laughs> and, and in the iconic tune of an iconic record. They said, we, I, one guy said, I listen to this record every night for a year. 
Like, I loved that. <laughs> and, you know, it was so funny because I made up that part. You know, Tom right. Waits didn't write that part. Of course, he just went, oh, oh, play something. Oh. You know, and so I played that part, and they, I guess they liked it because they mixed it way up. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very funny, you know, uh, that I'm kind of on record of playing that kind of iconic marimba part when I am just, I'm just a really bad marimba player. That's just... <laughs> Well, I'm guessing Tom Waits wouldn't have been satisfied with perfection anyways, probably. No, he wanted all he wanted the rough edge for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, you know, perfect. <laughs> all right, since we're talking about Elliot on this episode that we're doing, I have to ask you about, you know, playing on Fractal and Larynx and playing like what was it like playing with all those other drummers live? That must have been an interesting experience. Yeah, it was a little cacophonous, but yeah. you know, <laughs> But Elliot always has, you know, I mean, Elliot really is a person who is always marched to the beat of his own drummer, right? <laughs> Talking about drum and, you know, maybe marched to the beat of his own drummers, you yeah. know, he even took it one level, one, one level past that, you know, very, very individual view of music and what music is and how music should be heard and played, you know, like it don't like it, you know, hate, whatever, whatever, you cannot deny that it is a singular vision. Mm-hmm. You know, Elliot's vision is very, very singular and very personal and very powerful. And so knowing that, you know, I always, even if sometimes I felt, some, I'm sure I did felt sometimes it was a little, maybe it was a little much or I was a little FC. I always trusted it, you know, because Elliot really had his, I always tried to figure out, well, he hears something, so I need to, you know, I have to trust that, right? I have to trust that and and uh, that he, he knows what he's hearing. And indeed he did, you know, um, listening back. So that's the thing. It's like when you trust someone, um, who, you know, when you trust someone like that, you, you that that means the world because then you you can you can dive all the way in you know you're mm-hmm. not you're not second guessing you know um so you know i mean it was great i had fun all those years and um uh you know his music his music is in, in one sense you know very far away from my music but yet not you know we are we share so many aesthetics. It's just a very interesting, you know, um, you know, kind of relate dynamic that we have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's another name that'll be familiar to some of our listeners. Uh, Stephen O'Malley, among others in the group mass. How did that project come together? Um, I just, I just had this idea that, you know, I had remembered in my university Buffalo days, I took a, medieval music class and i absolutely fell in love with dufay guillaume dufay uh 15th century composer and i i you know then i forgot about it right Right. (laughs) for years right and uh you know and then i took my place amongst the some of the improvisers what i consider the great improvisers of the world and downtown scene and blah 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 and the rest is history whatever so you know i i thought for some reason i had this idea of putting together um, Dufay 
with some kind of music. And I started, I wrote a whole album's worth of music with um, his, you know, Misa Sancti Jacobi. And it was like with horns and blah, blah, blah. And I even toured some of it. And this is an example of, you know, this is one thing I've learned. You know, it's never too late to throw something in the trash, you know? <laughs> yeah. No matter how much you're invested in it, I'm sorry. If, if it's not, if it's not what you really want, if it's not up to snuff, whatever, you, you have to have the gumption or whatever. To, you just have to throw it in the trash, which is what I did. Well, I just, I got home, I listened to it, I said, you know what, this just doesn't work, really. And, um, but then I hit, but out of the ashes of that came mass, because then I realized, no, this, what, what was Defy like when you were there? What was, you know, now it sounds nice, you know, you go to a nice concert of Defy, you know, or, or medieval music, you know, at the, at the, at the, at the Met Museum in the little, you know, in the, in the, in the medieval section, you know, and you, you hear some nice music, you know, and you're all dressed up. But back then, what was it like, you know, before there were loud sounds like airplanes and amplifiers and cars, and before there were loud sounds and you were in that church, that stone church, and those voices were swirling and cascading around, and it, and it felt loud, right? And it felt like on the edge. And I thought, you know, that's really what I want to get at. That's what, you know, the, the emotional feeling of Defy, not, you know, not what it means today, but what it, what it, what it must have been like for those years to hear that. Right. Um, and so I thought, well, what music could be like that today and i thought well you know for me personally metal yeah. because metal was a music that i hadn't had too much you know i was a rock musician when i was young so you know i had affinity for electric loud music so but i hadn't really checked out metal so much because you know after that period i went into you know i was into the art ensemble you know uh, of chicago so and and anthony braxton and all that um, so metal was kind of far off my radar, you know, so I decided to write, you know, a metal trio um, with Dufy. And I started that film, but something was missing, something was missing. And then one night I heard these Methane um, uh, Nativity de Seigneur pieces. And I thought, man, you can't get more metal than Methane, you know. I mean, <laughs> these pieces were frightening and right. incredible organ pieces so i had the idea to add a pipe organ uh, to that thing so now it was like a three-leg monster you know i had metal pipe organ playing these kind of my graphic representations of my sort of things that i was inspired by messan and um, my rearrangement of Defy. and so what was i going to do of course i wanted to get stephen o'malley you know uh from sun O. Yep. and i went out to seattle to record him you know, and, you know, he had a stack of marshals, like, as high as the ceiling, like, <laughs> literally. Cause, you know, my friend Mel Detmer recorded the record, you know, because I knew her through Wayne Horvitz. I had this band with Skerrick and Wayne Horvitz called Ponga. Mm -hmm. and we knew Mel, and Mel was our sound person. She's awesome, sound person, and, and engineer, and, and, and mixer, and, you know, she's great. So she recorded him. And then subsequently, you know, I played a couple gigs with him. I played a gig in Italy and with uh, in Italy with him, some free music, and we went out one day to look at some old ancient sites. That's what he likes to do when he's yeah. on tour. You know, he likes, <laughs> like 
like from the Druids yeah. or something. <laughs> So anyway, sense. but he, yeah, <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, dressed black wearing his robe, bright, yeah, <laughs> in the bright right in the bright Sardinian sunshine. <laughs> we were out there, yeah. uh, so but uh, but he's cool, Stephen. But you know, he, he does that thing so beautifully. Uh, so uh, yeah, I have to ask about recording with Iggy Pop. Well, I you're going to be disappointed. Because uh, I never did record with him. Yeah, uh, he took the tracks and recorded, you know, in his Bahamas, Virgin Island, I don't know where, <laughs> his home there, you yeah, know. Yeah. But I must say, he really took it seriously, and he really, you know, let the music inside, and he did great. I mean, I was astonished by what he did. Beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, what he did. But I never really. You know, weirdly, he used to be in my bio because the end of my bio as a joke, I would also say, I've, you know, Bobby Previn has played with blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then I would say, and the internet swears Iggy Pop, although he <laughs> can remember. Because I think he was on a record I was on. The same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, of course, the internet thinks I played with Iggy Pop, right? And it would always like it would always show up on these internet, like, yeah, Bobby Private played with Iggy Pop, and I was always laughed, because I don't remember, I think I would remember <laughs> playing Iggy Pop, right? So, I think it was a record with, I think I traced it back, I think it was this record with George Cartwright or something. Um, I, I don't know, but I was in a record that he was also on, maybe even the track, but I never met him, mm-hmm. and, you know, this day I've never met him. I would love to meet him. I would love to play with him uh, someday. So, but that remains in the future. Yeah. Well, his vocal on or his vocals on Loneliness Road really, really suit that record well. Oh man, great! I mean, uh, astonishingly good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I should know this, but have you ever played with Henry Kaiser? No. I've never met Henry Kaiser. Hmm. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is weird. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of the Loneliness Road album, I'm, I maybe have this wrong, but I know Jamie Saft played on that record. It seems like you are revisiting your Doom Jazz project with Jamie. Well, to be to be yeah, I mean to be fair, that that kind of is Jamie's record, mm. you know. Doom Jazz is our record, um, and by the way, I should I should say that you know Doom Jazz has now been put out. On uh, vinyl by Subsound uh, in Italy, mm-hmm. Doom Jazz, and it's actually now going to be expanded to a four-record set. Yeah, Doom Jazz, Doom Jazz One is out, and Doom Jazz Two will be out, I believe, in May, hopefully. Um, and, and it's all just Jamie and I duo. So you know, Jamie was in my band early on, and you know, my um, Weather Clear Track Fast band. And we, we toured and, you know, we, we became friends and, you know, after he, you know, he was very young then, now after that, our relationship changed and we became peers, you know, um, as, as is what happens. And he, um, but he, it's really his project. He put it all together. He got Iggy. He, you know, of course I introduced him to Steve because he asked me, you know, you know, I really want to play with Steve Swallow and he knew that I, Steve had been in my band for many years, and I knew Steve pretty well. Would I introduce him? And I said, of course, and, and ask him. So, so Steve was totally down, and we had that trio for years. And 
but that was really a lot of Jamie's energy, you know, were those projects. Okay, what else are you cooking up? Uh, let me say that, you know, my most recent thing, I just got back yesterday from Greensboro, North Carolina. The thing I'm really into now is my um, Blueprints project. Hmm. Um, now, have you heard of that? No, tell us. Tell me about that. Ha-ha! Ha-ha! <laughs> I'm, this is this is my latest big project that I, um, you know, besides one half of my life now is I do I'm doing a lot of teaching finally, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. I do my improvisation workshop and master classes, but um, my blueprints project is okay. So you know how sometimes you you might. But really, I'm not going to put together, go back to setting on and go and call, you know, Ellery or all these people. And for what? For one gig, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. um, I sort of been there, done that. Right. I did Moscow Circus. I did um, uh, Coalition of the Willing with Charlie and, you know, Hunter. And I yeah. did all these, you know, all these projects. I did. uh, uh, uh pull to open my first record out of Buffalo. I did all those records and all those projects. So I don't, but sometimes, you know, you just like, Oh yeah, you get nostalgic for your old music. So one day I was at this artist colony in California and I thought, what if I took every single piece of music I ever wrote, whether it was released or not, whether it was for a film, a commercial, a record, whatever it was, string quartet i don't know and i just took a fragment of it mm-hmm. so just a fragment any fragment that i wanted one fragment right so it could fit on one page of a pdf document and and the piece evolved over time but what i did was basically i did that so i went to every single piece i ever wrote and i took out one fragment like sometimes the fragment is 20 bars sometimes it's the theme sometimes it's just a chord change you know a, a, a harmonic progression sometimes it's graphic a graphic right. sometimes it's one bar that i really liked and i t- took so i would take these out and i would strip them of all identifying factors from whence they came so no dynamic markings no loudness no soft no instrument markings you know uh no this is for guitar this is for saxophone none of that um no uh you know just in a medium octave right uh no other words like you know so just pure notes and i and i pasted them up one to a page in this gigantic pdf document that is now 230 plus pages at least right right and i put them in my ipad in a program called fourscore and what i do with blueprints is i project them on a screen and i stand in front of the screen and the band in two lines is on the side of me and i spontaneously flip through this music and select certain people to do certain things with it, right? Like maybe I'll select the horn section and play this, play this line, or I'll say, play this line and octave down through hand motions, but they read from the screen. Mm. And I also do a lot of 
hand things that I did, of course, we all learned from Butch Morris, right? Some conduction. Yeah. So it's a combination of, but it's different from Butch's because Butch never actually had music. So it's part conduction and part written music, but kind of really rapid fire. Like I could be like, they could be doing something and I would just scroll to a completely different fragment, right? Mm. But here's the, the, here's the kicker that the audience also sees the music. They're facing the screen. So it's kind of fascinating, I think, for audiences because they, it's inclusive, you know. They're, and, you know, sometimes it's hilarious because sometimes it looks like regular music, right? Oh, there's, you know, notes and, you know, uh, uh, clefts, you know, and a uh, time signature. Oh, yeah, and I, and, and you can, I can see their faces like, oh, I get this. I, I can read along with them. I know what they're doing. You know, maybe I studied classical music. Maybe I play a little bit. I, you know, I know how to. But then all of a sudden, there's a fragment of one note, right? I have a fragment from a tune I did called Deep Lake of my uh, European Pan Atlantic band. It just goes like, boom, 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 just a low F. That's all it is. Right. But of course, I'm calling people, like, do an electronic solo through that. I'm, I'm doing all sorts of things, right, around this low F. But all they can see is one bar with one quarter note. And so then the audience is like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, so you will, you will allow people to improvise on top of the... Oh, totally. Okay. It's very yeah. fun. Yeah. But, you know, I'm like... I'm directing the improvisation. Oh no, we're not just reading the music. Right, that right. would be terrible. That would be boring. <laughs> um, we're reading the music, and a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. You know, when I'm calling on people to solo. I'm I'm doing hand motions. Like sometimes I'll look over the horns. I'll just put my hands out for them to play a held note or a staccato notes or play a glissando by moving my hand up and down you know all these things that butch did a lot right yeah um but it's in the context a lot of this written music you see so i just got through doing uh two nights outdoors at greensboro with a band of like 15 people wow Um, yeah it (laughs) It must be really exhilarating for you to do that (laughs) oh yes it's amazing it's exhilarating but it's also exhausting because I, afterwards, I'm just completely spent because what am I doing? I'm making, I'm making an, a spontaneous kind of symphony. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 75 minutes of music from start. You know, we never stop. I start somewhere. I could start with a hand signal. I could start by pointing to someone saying, "Play a melody," or "I'll give you a," me- or, or you know, or I could point to all of that. Play as loud as you can, free, and just give the downbeat. Or I could pre- have look have projected music and turn to somebody and say, play number three, which is whatever it is, right? right? right. Could be a melody. Or, yeah. um, so, and once these things are going on, I'm constantly changing, okay, what can follow this? What can follow this? You know, so the music always has to sort of evolve uh, from one thing to the next because so we never stop. Right, right. By the end of the gig, I'm pretty much <laughs> a vegetable, you know, I'm pretty, pretty spent, but it's really great. The musicians love it. Uh, I've been doing it up here in Hudson for two years now. And, you know, I've got people driving an hour to, you know, just to play it. You know, there's no money in it, right. but, you know, 
because it's just so much fun. I bet. Because, yeah, Dude. no one really knows what'll happen. And it's different from playing free music, like, because it isn't free in that sense, you right, know, right. free. Uh, but it's always so super surprising and always super fun. We have a lot of laughs, you know. I mess up sometimes and then they mess up and, you know, we laugh about it and the audience sees us laughing and they see how we can move from one thing to another. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of really fun and great. <laughs> so that's been my kind of my main focus for a while. Um, and you know, if I'm not playing the drums, you right. know, if I'm not, cause I'm conducting there, if I'm not playing the drums, you know, when some of these ensembles I've put together up here where I, and now have a house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's that. And, um, and, you know, I just recorded finally a solo drum record for the first time. I always wanted to really record a solo drum record. So, cause I have a studio now up here. And so I did that. I just finished it. And I just finished also recording a solo electronic record, electronics, drums, auto harp, guitars, basses, organs, a little bad trumpet (laughs) (laughs) but uh i was very inspired by the um the web telescope launch um in the midst of all this awfulness which is our world today Mm -hmm. i was very moved that human beings could actually maybe do something together just for knowledge sake and i i don't know i that might, might be naive, you know, people are still starving and yes, maybe that money could have been used for that, but a, would it have been, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's probably just a drop in the bucket of the military budget, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, um, I was very inspired and I thought, Oh, I, you know, I, I want to write, I want to make, do a, an electronic record. So I just finished that too. So I, you know, I've been, I've been quite busy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and good. Awesome. So where can people go to, to read more to your website? Yes, they can go to my website and, um, actually I'm, am teaching a, a summer session of my workshop and applications are still open on my workshop. This is going to be an in-person session if, you know, if we can, mm-hmm. um, in Hudson, New York, in the, at the Hudson Opera House, which is a beautiful restored opera house with a beautiful, huge room that we do this um, in workshop in, uh, and I teach free improvisation of all from all for all instruments. Um, I do, you know, in person. In in the winter, I do it online. I just finished doing that in January, and uh, so applications are still open for that. So if you go to my site. Um, you know, people will see that it's free by the way. It's absolutely free. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm paid by the opera house so we can offer it to the community for free, which is super cool. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. So, uh, that's what I'm doing. Awesome. Bobby, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Really appreciate it, man. We ended up talking like for a while. <laughs> but it's great. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I, had, I had a good time. And um, you really, you asked, you, you really asked great questions. You are a oh, great interviewer. Thank you. To say. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay, man. Yep. So have a good day. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, later.
Awesome. What a great interview with Bobby. Um, kind of reminded me that I needed to, like I said at the outset of the show here, I needed to pull my some of my Tom Waits records off the shelf. It's been a while. Um, and uh, I, had, I had no idea that arguably Rain Dogs was on the tree. So <laughs> lo- love that. You know, and Rain Dogs has always had like a really important place for me because, you know, I know... He started to shift kind of on swordfish trombones, but wit, but Rain Dogs is when Tom went full weights for me, and yeah. the rest is history after that. And and uh, you know I've always just been a fan, and so it was a great excuse to go and be like, oh my god, that's the guy. And uh, it's amazing to hear Bobby talk about you know his circle of friends <laughs> and musicians being amazed that it was him as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, a few things from the interview, uh, for me, pull to open the record we talk about. That's the name of the group. It was released as Zor number four in 1980 recorded at Buffalo college of musical knowledge in 1980. It's more of a traditional post-bop jazz record, but it's a great reminder that Bobby is a lot more than just a drummer. He's also a composer. Like he composed the entire record. Hmm. Uh, Bobby mentions Elliot getting disciplined at the Buffalo State University. In Elliot's book, Irrational Music, he talks about, quote, connecting with various other aspiring composers, players, and musical thinkers, including Bobby Previtt, Mark Stephen Brooks, Greg Ketchum, and Charlie Kaufman. We had endless discussions, sessions of improvisation, and experiments with graphic scores game pieces, and philosophical approaches to composition. Uh, He also mentions Bobby's mentor, professor of percussion, Jan Williams, who I think Bobby mentions in the interview, uh, was an integral part of the Center for Creative and Performing Arts and a positive presence in the department, constantly performing and organizing events and encouraging the young composers. But then he goes on to to describe this incident. In April of 1975, he took part, Elliot, in a campus demonstration in support of prisoners who had participated in the Attica prison riots of 1970. He ended up getting arrested, really for no reason. He was brutalized by the police and railroaded on trumped-up charges. After 18 months of hearings, the charges were all dropped in exchange for him not suing for false arrest and for police brutality, but he still ended up banned from campus for six months and suspended from the school. Mm. So that's the the incident that Bobby references in the interview. So I didn't want to interrupt you while you were spieling there, but you mentioned Charlie Kaufman. Is that Charlie Kaufman, the filmmaker? I don't know. Like It could being, be. Like being John Malkovich? Yeah, I don't know. It could be. He doesn't, he doesn't expand on that. Oh, I got to check into that. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. His Joe Furla stories are great. Look him up. Mm. Another of these engineers with just an unbelievably impressive resume. Uh, The Empty Suits album he's talking about, you know, with the fader. Yes. Where he's riding the fader. The fader. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good record under Bobby's name, Empty Suits. Uh, which he produced, arranged, and composed all the songs. Elliot plays guitar on it. That's a good one. How cool, Ryan, though, is the concept of his Blueprints project? I don't even know what to think about it. I wish I could, (laughs) you know, completely grasp it. But, you know, like a snippet from every piece of music you've ever written and just project it and conduct it. 
like yeah wow like wow i i immediately went to youtube to try and find you know footage of it but yeah sadly that i couldn't find any but it just sounds totally wild and you can just tell how much fun he's having with that project just by listening to him talk about it yeah let's get into this record ryan history lesson part two okay so the first four tracks are from the elliot sharp carbon album from 1984 it came out originally on Elliot's Zor label as Zor 15 and on German experimental label Atonal, as did a number of Elliot's releases over the years, including that killer second Bootstrappers record. Right. Uh, it was recorded and mixed at BC Studio by Martin BC. Elliot on guitar, bass, sax, clarinet, and trombone. Bass, tubinet, and of course, composing and producing. Charles K. Noyes on bass drum and bowed cymbal. I, I believe he would sometimes just play a kick drum, if I'm remembering right, you know, like with mallets. Mm -hmm. uh, David Linton playing electronic drums and metal percussion, much as he did on, how do you say it? Larynx? <laughs> <laughs> well, you say larynx, I say larynx. <laughs> Uh, now, we talked about Mark Miller, I believe, in that episode in connection to Elliot and Charles with the group Toy Killers, uh, but he did not play on Larynx like David and Charles did, uh, but he does play on this one, Snare, Tom Tom, and Congos. Now, there's six songs total on the original album, uh, so only this record is only two shy of the complete album. It's got four off of there. In his book, he talks about Carbon first being conceived in April of 1983, the idea being to mash up what he'd been doing with his solo music and the heavy grooves of his ISM project, which was more of a polyrhythmic no-wave group that he had. As mentioned in the liners, debuted at the Speed Trials a month later in May 1983, alongside Lydia Lunch, The Fall, Swans, Sonic Youth, Beastie Boys, and Toy Killers. Shortly after that, he took the project over to Europe for a tour. So we start with track one, Geometry. This is also the first track on the original record. Like all of this material, it's very rhythmic, but not too dense on this recording. You can really hear all the different drums clearly. Uh, you've got E-sharp doing his, you know, great noisy guitar on top. Lots of harmonics mm -hmm. on the guitar, which is something he does frequently. And every once in a while, he'll do this big bend, like he's bending the neck, not a string. But the note bends up and, and not down like it would with a whammy bar or something. It gives it a cool effect. I don't know how he does it, though. Bends, yeah. bends the note up like that. This is the same track or snippet of the same track from Larynx that, again, really reminds me of all of that Japanese drumming. It, uh, it's really percussive, it's hypnotic, industrial, all of that at the same time. Yeah. Uh, track two, ISO. It sounds like sax on a loop, I would say. Yeah, for me, it's like medieval reed instruments and, and industrial drums again um, with some fusion sax skronking thrown in for good measure. Yeah, it kind of returns to that looping sax you know throughout the song is a bit of a theme some real industrial sounds like you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, some guitar feedback that adds a real cool feel to it 
Track three is Helicopters. The rhythm on this one is driven by the congas, kind of beating out a steady hypnotic rhythm, like a chopper blade, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, these tracks are fairly long, too. Each song we've heard so far is over five minutes. Yeah, this one's got some really cool sounds that sound like just banging on real loose strings, almost. Yeah, like yeah. Like big, big rubber bands, metal rubber bands, almost, or something. Sounds cool. Yep. Track four, Inverse Proportions. This one has Leslie Dalaba on trumpet, uh, who we also saw in Larynx. She was another total fixture of that amazing downtown scene, and she's really the star of this track. Some mm-hmm. screeching industrial sounds. I assume Charles is beating out a rhythm on his kick drum and Leslie playing this kind of repetitive pattern over some multi-tracked trumpets. When you're talking about Charles playing the kick drum up with like mallets, you're thinking like Mo Tucker style, hey? Is yeah. that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I got you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so the next four tracks are from Six Songs and Marco Polo's Argali. So that the album title is written Six Songs slash Marco Polo's Argali. 1985 on the great German label Dossier. Side A of the record contains six songs, four of which are represented on this comp. The B side of the album is a totally excellent 20-minute epic called Marco Polo's Argali. This one again was engineered by Martin BC at BC Studio on February 8th through 9th, 1985. It's a totally different lineup from the previous record. Uh, and he talks in his book kind of about the shifting lineup. Touring continuously between 1984 and 87 with a shifting cast of musicians, the band clarified into a pool of players who had learned not just the riffs, the vocabulary and syntax of the pieces, but also the reasons behind the construction. Carbon might range from a duo with Linton or a trio with Bobby Previtt and Per Ubo bassist Tony Mayome. Tony Maymone. Tony Maymone, thank you, to larger groups adding some of my invented instruments to the mix of brass, reeds, and percussion required to perform Marco Poli's Argali. During two tours in Japan in 1985 and one in 1986, I lectured on my compositional strategies and performed solo, as well as with many Japanese artists. So that's cool. It, he was kind of just, uh, you know, he had, you know, a pool, I guess, of musicians that he could just draw from, you know, when he wanted to take Carbon on tour and depending how he wanted to present the band. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that actually um, Tony Maimon is on the tree as well because he played on some of Bob Mould's first solo records. Hmm. Pretty sure. Pretty okay. sure about that. Uh, so on this one, we have Elliot composing and producing and playing his usual array of instruments, along with James Moosen on various drums. James, another downtown dude, he's performed as a drummer or drum programmer on tons of albums, uh, like Bobby's previously mentioned Empty Suits record, stuff by Dr. Nerve, the excellent Wayne Horvitz New Generation album, and many more. Jane Tomkowitz on Pantar and Slab. We saw her play Clay Drums on Elliot's In the Land of Yehus album. <laughs> Did I say that wrong? Why do I say <laughs> Yehus? <laughs> I love how you say Yehus. <laughs> I'm never going to correct. 
I'm never going to correct you on that one. I'm probably thinking of the band The Yahoos. Yeah. That's a and good band. And you're sure it's not The Yahoos? <laughs> Keep going. In the Keep going. in the land of Yahoos album. <laughs> Yahoos sounds better. <laughs> okay, so hey, fair fair play. Fair yeah. play. Okay, so we're on to track five, CIA Pope. You've got Jane on the Pantar and Slabs for sure. Uh this is a real metal on metal. Yeah. Industrial lots of, clang. Lots of metal. With yep. like didgeridoo sounds almost. Yeah. This one has a real groove to it. And and it's on the shorter side, so I dig it. It also, from time to time, almost has like a gypsy music type of vibe here and there. Not like there's a very strong melody or something, but just that same kind of rhythm. You could see a bunch of gypsies going to town. Almost like a Gogol bordello type thing almost. Some I don't know. Tipsy gypsies maybe? No, no. Not enough scarves. <laughs> uh, track six, Intervention. Elliot's doing that double neck guitar bass tapping thing that he does. It creates a, a cool effect. He, he's also credited with voice on the LP, so I'm not sure if that's him, you know, screaming. There are some wailing vocals on this track, yeah. Yeah, that, this song gets pretty intense with the screaming. Mm-hmm. Track seven, Last Laugh. Sounds like a looped sax or clarinet that fades kind of in and out once the drums come in. And Elliot again tapping out a rhythm, it sounds like. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, one of the most traditional drum kit sounds on, on the tracks on this record too. It almost sounds like a real kit. At least the snare is coming in prominently. Yeah. Okay, track eight, Vicious Cycle kind of an off-kilter rhythm with more of the guitar harmonics. Uh, these four tracks work well with the first four. Like, the mm -hmm. sound quality is equal. You know, obviously it was all recorded at BC. Uh, they're not a huge leap stylistically in the sense that you wouldn't know they're from a different album, necessarily. Mm -hmm. I, would I, I would agree, yeah. There, it has similar themes and styles. The tapping, the harmonics or overtones. Um, almost like, uh, what's that? I don't know what you call the sound, but you know, when you pluck the strings behind the nut on your headstock, yep. like, like that type of sound as well. So I, I agree fit the first eight tracks. They hang together pretty good. I think that sounds just called plinking. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said plunking, but sure. Plink. Ah, uh, you're probably right. Well, plink. You it's say more of a pl you it's say a plink. you say Yahoo. I say Yahoo. <laughs> no, you say Yahoo. <laughs> it's a it's a plink. I agree. All right, track nine, man. Come on. No, no. Uh, we're because we're moving moving on to different albums here. Because that leaves us with six tracks from the Fractal album. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Uh, all but one from that release are on here. That was released in 1986 again on Dossier. I should also add that all three of those albums were LP only. So this would have been the first time any of these songs were made available on CD or cassette. Mm. Again, recorded at BC by Martin. Elliot composed and produced, of course. Played guitar, voice, slab, panter, violinoid. Violinoid? Don't ask me. Tubinets and reeds. <laughs> Not sure what a violin violinoid or tubinets are undoubtedly more musical creations of 
the mad scientist known as Elliot Sharp. Yeah, maybe some cool found items in the alleys of New York as well, right? <laughs> just like a pantar or a slab. Yeah. I wonder if, I mean, just picking up in your comment about these being on CD for the first time, I wonder if this is Elliot saying to Ginn, let's take advantage of this new format, the compact disc, and get some of these vinyl-only tracks on a long-playing CD, man. Sure. Yep, uh... Well, like you said in last week's episode, man, remember? CDs, we have them. (laughs) Yeah. They're the latest craze, right? They're the latest craze we have. Fast Freddy. Well, Fast Freddy was buying Rod Stewart on vinyl that day. So, anyways. Okay. Uh, We also have Charles K. Noyes and Bobby Previtt on drums, although Charles is only on one of these tracks. Uh, But he does play the saw which is interesting. I once saw uh, at a local talent show a dude play uh, House of the Rising Sun on a saw. Like with a bow, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, pretty cool. far out. Yeah. The singing saw. Yeah. Uh, Katie O'Looney on Pantar and Slab. Katie was a drummer in a few New York bands like uh, Bite Like a Kitty and Details at Eleven. Check details at 11. They had a self-titled album on Dossier in 1986. It's kind of cool. It's kind of that, you know, that arty, dancey, funky, no-wave thing. Mm. Uh, also in details 11 is Ken Heer, uh, who plays trombone on this. He was also in that band. And we saw him on Larynx. James Staley on trombone and bass trombone, uh, another mainstay of the downtown scene. Jim... Mussen or Moosen uh, plays Slab, a New York drummer who played with Axel Kroll or and Tal Bergman. Here's from his book again, Ryan, Irrational Music, Elliot's. In also in 1985, I became aware of the fractal geometry of Benoit Mandelbrot through an article in Scientific American. This was as life changing as Neuromancer. If you remember Ryan in Larynx, we talked about how he he got obsessed with. Alex Gibson's book, Neuromancer. Mm -hmm. And it kind of influenced his music as well. I felt a strong resonance with Mandelbrot's mapping of mathematical functions to such forms and phenomena as nature of turbulence, chaos, and seeming randomness. So he talks about uh, getting a a grant uh, and putting up, (laughs) you know, fixing up his apartment a bit and acquiring an an Atari ST computer. But then he goes, a fractal generator was one of my first software purchases. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, we all know that music and, and the notes and the spacing between notes and the way that it's, it's written out, all, all that stuff is like, you know, based on mathematical principles, but Elliot just takes it to the zillionth level right? Oh yeah, man. It's insane. Here he says, with the album Fractal recorded in the autumn of 1986, I set out to capture various aspects of fractal geometry as translated to the inner ear. I wasn't interested in generating tables of fractals to construct musical material, feeling that this approach was, this approach was too mechanistic. Instead, I was attempting to sonify such notions as self-similarity and the echo between microstructure and macrostructure. Sounds like a Voivod lyric. Translating them into musical terms. (laughs) 
he just goes on, man. That like reading this just is insane. It's just insane. Yeah. Even the liners on the SST, he's talking about the interzone between order and chaos as manifested in the guided improvisations of the players within the algorithms of each piece. Hmm. Now it sounds I, like a William S. Burroughs novel or something. <laughs> <laughs> or Neuromancer. Okay, uh, so we're on track nine, Singularity. Uh, he says in his book, layers of guitars, basses, and drums played in nested proportional rhythms, microscopic to macroscopic. The guitars and basses used a variety of tunings that ranged from near unisons to larger intervals, all in reflective proportions. Was there anything in that book about whether the you know how the Fibonacci were used for the structure and tunings was did fractal drive like that fractal geometry drive any of the tunings in the same way that Fibonacci did? I don't know about the tunings. I think it's more to, to the rhythms, the rhythms. Okay. That's yeah, my yeah. assumption. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say rhythm rhythmically, like I'm not sure how it's related to the ge geometry if it is, uh, but it's definitely not as steady and repetitive on these tracks as some mm. of the other stuff we've heard. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much of it would have been improvised and how much notated. You know what I mean? Like like you said in the in the liner notes he talks about uh there you know there's definitely improv within the the structure. The structure. Yeah. yeah. Uh so then we've got the track next that Charles K Noise plays on Squig and it sounds like a squig. <laughs> You've got the, you've got some planking, is. some planking maybe, maybe uh, the violinoid maybe. I thought it was like a flute, but maybe it's the violinoid. I think maybe the weird groaning sound is the tubinets. You can tell he's blowing into something. Yeah, it's a but, weird it's a weird and cool track. Yeah, but again, something as close as you get on this record to a drum kit sound almost. Yeah. Uh, track 11 is Turbulence. Uh, here's the violinoid, for sure, I'd say. Uh, the me is it the metal scraping sound, almost? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, again, rhythm rhythmically, not as repetitive as some of the other stuff from the er earlier two albums. Uh, this fractal material is just way noisier and abrasive, actually. Mm. But, you know, but that's cool. Uh I feel like he's building up with these records to the ultimate carbon album, Larynx. Like I feel, I feel that's what's happening here. He's he's yeah. kind of building to that. You know, this album is cool in the sense that it kind of shows that progression. You know, in, including some more of the the homemade instruments that were so prominent on Larynx. Track twelve is Dusts. Here's I think again the tubinets maybe like. You said a didgeridoo earlier. It sounds like almost like again, like Inuit throat singing or something, which I think I was is gonna, yeah. I was going to say Tibetan monks almost. Yeah, I think we had some of this on fra on larynx as well. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a low droning sax. I'm not sure that if you know if they would have processed it in the studio or or if that was just a natural tone that you can get, I guess, through a sax. Uh, track thirteen. I'm saying everything wrong this re this episode ryan how would you say the 
title of track 13? Oh, I don't know. Lacunar? Oh, sure. Uh, The track is built around uh, more looping sax sounds and some guitar tapping. It's really noisy. This is where maybe the length of this release works against it. Like, it's a lot to take in in one sitting, this this album. Yeah. Uh, and then speaking of length, we end the disc with the 16-minute long track, Not Yet Time. Yeah. Uh, it basically incorporates much of the sounds and themes we've heard throughout these songs. Around the 10-minute mark, it goes into this cool rhythmic groove that I really dig. I, it made me wonder if that track was all recorded live or pieced together. It it drops out so many times in the track yeah. that it it could have easily easily been you know spliced together with with tape splicing or you know just editing of some sort. That was my thinking versus live that there was some splicing going on. Yeah, it's got everything though, right? It's got like some ultra fuzzed out guitar sound that almost sounds like static something that sounds almost like you know chinese crash cymbals that might be like a sampler tap more tapping more toms more rototoms harmonics creating some sort of melody almost like some goose like sax squawks near the end too like some serious goose action I, I would love to see some of this stuff performed live, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not something I would throw on, you know, the disc on super often. Like, maybe once every couple of years you'd get a hankering for this. But I'd love to see it live. Yeah, I will admit that listening to this record after having done Larynx, or Larynx, um, it was more familiar a more familiar listen to me, I guess is what I want to say this time around. Yeah. And I kind of, I got with the flow a lot more quickly. This, this listen. Yeah. And I had the same thing. Kind The reason I was thinking about how cool it would be to see this live was, um, the sounds on dusts, which again, you know, might be throat singing for me, this episode, it sounded like Tibetan monks. I remember seeing the Tibetan monks perform live once in like a theater and that live organic sound and some of this stuff that Elliot would probably be producing off the stage would be just insane. Like you just cannot match that on CD. Yeah. Well, I think for me, it's just, you know, this album is over an hour long and that's a lot. That's a lot for me for any, any artist really. Except for the new double LP Iron Maiden record? Yeah. Yeah, and the new Diamond Dogs is a double album, and that's what that rules, too. <laughs> How long is the new Voivod? It's got to be Ooh, over an hour, right? I haven't looked. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to get the double disc, because it comes with a live album. Yeah, got to get the go. deluxe edition, so. Yeah. The cover photo, Ryan, was taken by Hope Martin, a New York-based visual artist who Elliot was dating at the time. He talks about about her in his book, how they met and stuff. Uh, the photograph was originally used as the cover of Fractal mm-hmm. and was repurposed here. Uh, Elliot told me uh, we were traveling in Mexico in 1984, and that pic was taken when we were at the Mayan archaeological site Palenque Chiapas. 
probably standing against a wall, like reflected on a wall, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Cool shadow. You can definitely tell it's Elliot. Oh, yeah. Uh, Manfred Lang shot the inner photo, kind of, you know, that classic type of photo you see of Elliot uh, with a buttoned-up black shirt just slapping the shit out of that double-neck guitar bass. Yeah, he's just whacking it, eh? Look at that. Yeah, he doesn't shred, he whacks. No, he shreds too, what am I saying? I think this is, you know, might be one of our last records with Elliot. I know there's a another comp on, on the label, but I think it's maybe stuff we've already heard. Mm. It's, too, it's a shame. Yeah, the CD itself has got an image on it that kind of looks like almost uh, like a like a burner on a stove. I don't know what that is meant to uh, to represent. And then the back cover has got basically a, a drawing of that shadow image of Elliot on the front, just in the two different tones of blue. Hmm. Total time, though, hey? 72 minutes and 45 seconds. Just getting every inch out of this new, exciting compact disc format. Yep. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. What were your picks, Ryan? Uh, it's funny. It's it's so tough because there there is, like, all of them are kind of similar in a way. Yep. You know, and it's, it's hard to put your finger on it. Um, but I really liked, I mentioned it when we were going through the tracks, I like that loose string sound on helicopters. Um, and then, uh, maybe the plinks on vicious cycle. I don't know. Those would maybe be my first, my first two picks. Uh, I like geometry, inverse proportions, turbulence, dusts, but my favorite was CIA Pope, uh, because I like the groove and I like that song title too. CIA. CIA Pope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Pope works for the CIA, don't you know? Of course. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Who doesn't work for the CIA? It was in the Panama Papers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Well, Oliver Stone made a movie about it too, right? Of course. Yeah, there you go. So what are we doing? CIA Pope? Let's do it. Score. All right. Ryan, thanks uh, to Bobby for being on the show. Thanks to Elliot too. He, He chipped in with a few nuggets, so that's awesome. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Wow, next week, Brent... Going back to one of our faves, for sure, it's SST-209, the Slovenly We Shoot for the Moon LP. Ooh, can't wait. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.